You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. So the passage that we have today is 1 Kings 18. You know, it's one of the most famous stories that we find in the Old Testament. A lot of people are familiar with this passage. You know, it's the epic showdown between Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. And by the way, that's why you have that, that kind of cool graphic on your bulletin today, the epic showdown. Yeah. So, and, and while the story is packed with action, drama, everything that you would ever want, you know, in, in a story, you know, violence, fire, and it has all the ingredients that make a story interesting. But really, I think God is trying to address a very foundational issue in our Christian life through this passage. Now, back in 1 Kings chapter 16, we see a king rise, and his name is Ahab. So if you know a little bit, a little bit about the history of Israel, you'll know that um, after the King Solomon's reign, um, Israel basically divided into two nations, South Judah and then also northern Israel. So in the northern side, if you study their history, you don't see a single king that is good. Every single king is pretty much bad. What's interesting is in 1 Kings chapter 16, we come to Ahab, and the way that he's described is quite interesting. He says that Ahab did more wicked things in the eyes of the God than any other king that came before him. So he was a pretty bad king. Not only that, his biggest problem was that he was married to this Sidonian princess called Jezebel. And Jezebel, she came from a country that worshipped Baal, the Canaanite fertility god and Canaanite uh, storm god. He was the one who controlled the storm, the, the, the wind, the skies, everything about the weather. He controlled it all. So together, Ahab and Jezebel, what they did was they built a house for Baal. They built altars for Baal. They worshipped Baal, and Baalism at that time was all over the northern kingdom of Israel. And so when we come to 1 Kings chapter 17, we see Elijah, the Tishbite, come to the scene. And at this point, Israel has a very serious problem. Because back in 1 Kings chapter 8, when they dedicate the temple of Solomon, you know, Israel is a unique nation. They are set apart from any other nation. They are called to be holy so that people will see the temple and so that people will see the glory of God and that people will come and worship him. But now they lost their uniqueness. No longer are they different from any other nation. They are just basically blending in into the culture and into the values that are surrounding them. So when Elijah comes to the scene, he declares a drought. He says, it's not going to rain for three years. And for three years, he spends time in different places, led by the word of God. And now, finally, in 1 Kings 18, he appears on the scene once again. And he meets King Ahab face to face. And that's where we pick up in verse 17. It says this, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? So basically, Ahab is saying, Elijah, man, I've been looking for you, been getting on my nerves. Ever since you proclaimed the drought in Israel, man, it's been difficult. And we had a famine. And I've been looking for you, you troubler of Israel. 
But in response, Elijah says, I'm not the one who's the troubler, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. By the way, Baal, that's the American way to pronounce it. The Hebrew way is Baal. So you can kind of choose whatever you would like to do. I'm just going to do the American name because, because this is America. But, but yeah, so after the three-year droughts, basically we come to a face-off. And Elijah is calling Ahab out. He's saying that you have sinned in front of the Lord God. And he says in verse 19, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asher, which is basically Baal's girlfriend, who eat at Jezebel's table. So finally, we get this, this face-off, and then we come to Mount Carmel, the place where the epic battle is going to take place. You know, finally, Elijah says, enough is enough. We're going to put an end to this, this nonsense. You know, he calls out Ahab for his idolatry. And finally, we have this epic showdown at Mount Carmel. And he says to the people that were gathered there, in verse 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions. Now, if the Lord God is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people did not answer and did not say a single word. So at this point, it's pretty clear why Elijah is setting up this match. It's not a personal kind of match between Elijah and Ahab. It's, it's a divine match between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and then Baal, the Canaanite storm god. And according to Elijah, there's only one reason he's trying to set this fight up. It's not for fun. It's not to just show off that God is powerful. He wants people to pick a side. He wants people to make the decision and make up their mind. It says, how long will you limp between two different opinions? The picture here is, is the idea of a bird limping between branches, uh, different branches. The idea is a person dancing between two different people. The idea is, is a guy maybe going out with one girl and, and, the, and the back, in the back side, he's going out with another girl, right? This idea that someone is not committed, that's very casual. No, this was the picture of Israel. This was basically what they were doing with Baal and Yahweh. And Elijah's basically saying, stop dancing. Make up your mind. Now, if the Lord God is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then go ahead, follow him. Notice that Elijah is not simply saying, make up your mind, come up with an opinion. But he's basically saying, if you have an opinion, commit to it. Follow him. Follow whichever you believe in. So basic rules are kind of set by Elijah. Elijah says, okay, we're going to bring two bulls. You're going to pick one. I'll take the other one. And then... We're going to cut them into pieces. We're going to put this on, on a, piece of, uh, some, a couple pieces of wood on an altar. And then now we're going to call upon the name of our lords. You call upon Baal. I'm going to call upon Yahweh. And we'll see which God answers by fire. The God who answers by fire says in verse 24, he is God. Now, if you think about this fight, and if this fight took place today, there's not many people in Vegas who would bet for Elijah. You see, the odds are against Elijah and Yahweh. In the place, Mount Carmel, that was a place where, that was a significant place of worship for Baal. 
So it's basically a place where it's kind of like an away game, where you have an away crowd. Everyone is kind of cheering for Baal. Elijah is out. Think about what they're trying to do. They're trying to call fire from heaven. And if you, and if you remember, Baal is the Canaanite storm god. It's kind of like saying, okay, I want to figure out who the best athlete is in, in this world. So I'm going to get Usain Bolt, and I'm going to get LeBron James. And we're going to decide who's, who is the best athlete, right? But what we're going to do is we're going to have a 100-meter dash and see who's, who's best. Well, you, you will say, that's, well, that's unfair. I mean, they're great athletes, but, you know, Bolt, he, he runs for a living. You know, even though LeBron James is so good, how can he kind of match his, the greatness of Bolt? You see, if Baal controlled the weather and, and he, if he was a storm god, that meant he controlled lightning as well. In fact, a lot of people believe that he spoke through lightning or other people say that he had an arrow of lightning. So lightning was something under his command. So what Elijah is doing is he's playing the game of Baal. He's setting things up where all the odds are against him. And while everyone else thinks, okay, this is going to be lopsided. Now, we don't even have to see this match. Elijah says, okay, now it's game time. You guys go first. So what happens in verse 26 is, okay, people, the, the prophets of Baal, they gather together and they call upon their God. It says in verse 26, they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon for a couple hours saying, Oh, Bill, answer us. Oh, Bill, answer us. Come on. Come on, Bill. Oh, Bill, answer us for a couple hours till noon. They're, they're calling upon the name of their Lord, right? And it says that no voice and there's no one who answered. They limped around the altar that they had made. So Bill is not off to a good start. He's stumbling, right, off the gates. So people realize that Bill is not bringing his A game. So what happens is now Elijah notices that and he begins to trash talk a little bit. He says in 27, cry aloud for he is God. You know, either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. So Elijah is just trash talking you know, towards these, these prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal, they get... They get frustrated, right? And so what they do is, okay, we're going to bring out um, our, our secret weapon. And they bring out all these knives and, and, and spears and lances. And what they do is they start cutting themselves. They're dancing around. They're cutting themselves. This was kind of their custom, how when they were desperate, they would cut themselves and cry out loud to Baal, hoping that he would answer. In verse 29, after a couple of hours have passed, now it's midday. And still we see that there was no voice. And no one answered. And the Bible says, well, no one was even paying attention anymore. Baal was a bust. People thought this was going to be an epic showdown. This game was basically a bust. And now Elijah says, okay, it's my turn now. And he says to the people, come close. Get a good look at this. And what he does is, first thing he does is he, he takes, he gathers the wood and he begins to build an altar for the Lord. And this is quite interesting because Mount Carmel, before it was a place for Baal worship, it was a place where people worshiped God. So there was a broken altar there. So what Elijah is doing, he's kind of rebuilding the broken altar that once exists in Mount Carmel. He's basically trying to redeem God's reputation on that ground. 
So Elijah says, come clear, uh, come, come, come near. He says, okay, you know, here's the altar. He takes 12 stones that represent the 12 tribes of Jacob, and he surrounds the altar. And then Elijah trenches the altar. He puts wood on the altar, and then he lays the pieces of the bull on the altar. And just when you thought everything was set, he does something very interesting. He tells the people, okay, you know, bring four jars of water. You know, bring it to me. And then he begins to pour the water on the altar. One, two, three, four. And people are like staring at him. He's like, what's going on? Not only that, he says, okay, do it another time. And then people bring, bring more water, and then he does it again. And then he says, do it a third time. So 12 buckets of water are poured on this altar at the point where even the trenches around the altar are kind of soaked and filled with water. And I don't know if you like camping. I love camping. Have you ever been on a camping trip and then you kind of pull out the firewood and then you realize that it's all wet? <laughs> That's like the worst feeling because if you have wet firewood, you know that you, know, you can't light it up. It doesn't work that way. You know, if you want to create wood, you know, you, you have to have dry wood. So what is Elijah doing here? He's basically saying, okay, I don't have any tricks up my sleeves. I don't have a lighter in the back of my pocket. I'm just going to secretly light the, the fire. I'm going to make sure there's fire in this place. It's only by the grace of God. It's only, the only way that this altar is going to be light, uh, light up is by God. That's the only way. He's kind of silencing all the critics out there. So now, Elijah begins to pray in verse 36. And follow along with me in verse 36. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And we know about these names because we are experts in the book of Genesis, right? This is the covenantal name of God. This is the God of promises and the God who keeps his promises. You know, you see, a lot of idols, they make a lot of promises to you. But only God, Yahweh, he's the one who keeps his promises. You know, money tells you that, you know, you're gonna, if you have a lot of money, you're going to have a happy life. But money doesn't always keep his promises, right? A lot of relationships says, okay, if you find someone significant, man, you're going you're gonna to be secure. You're going to feel comfortable. You're gonna, you don't have to worry about anything for the rest of your life. You see, they make a lot of promises. They don't really answer, do they? God is the covenantal God who not only, does make, not only does he make promises, but he is the one who keeps his promises. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And then Elijah calls upon God saying, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. So the reason why Elijah is doing all this is because he has a word from God. Everything that he's doing is not out of his will, but it's out of the word of God. And he says in verse 37, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So Elijah finishes his prayer, and then God delivers the knockout punch. The fire comes down from heaven. And it says that the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones. Okay, stones? 
And, and the dust, it consumed the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trenches. So not only did the fire consume the, 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 the pieces that were on the altar, not only did it consume the altar, everything, everything that was surrounding the altar was consumed. When God answers, he doesn't just answer in a very kind of questionable way, right? He answers so that there's no doubt that it's someone else other than God. God was the unanimous winner in this fight. There's no doubt. No one was asking for a rematch after this point. The story comes to a dramatic conclusion in verse 39. It says, And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. People are worshiping him. And in verse 40, Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So the main message today, I think, is this. God, Yahweh, is not one among many. He's the one and only. God is the one and only. He's not one among many. What does that mean? I think it means three things. The first thing is, if God is the one and only, it means that he's the ruler of our life, not just parts of our life, but he's the ruler of every area of our life. You know, there's a famous saying that a lot of people say, if God is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all, right? We pick and choose where we allow God to be our Lord, but other areas, we, we kind of hide it behind our backs and we make sure that everything is taken care of by our will. You know, in 1 Kings 18, you have to understand the people were driven and by agriculture. They, the basic way they survived was through agriculture. They farmed. They, 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 they grew crops. So agriculture was big at that time. So having a God who controls the weather wasn't such a bad idea, right? You know, it seemed very, very, very appealing, very attractive. You know, the Canaanite storm God who can control the rain and the wind. You know, when we think about weather, we think, okay, Bad weather, that's going to put me in a bad mood. When people thought about weather in the first century, it's, it's life and death. You know, if I don't have good weather, if I, if I don't have, then that means I don't have good crops and I can't survive. I can't provide for my family. So weather was such a big deal back in, back, back, um, back in the time of First Kings. So basically, they weren't abandoning their faith. It wasn't like they were kind of turning away from their roots as, as Israelites. But the thing is, they were adding things on top of their faith. That was the problem. It wasn't that they were being um, unfaithful to God. It's, it was the fact that, you know, they were adding more things onto their faith. They did it because it seemed like believing in Baal, it just seemed more practical, right? It seemed that it would, Baal seemed to address their immediate need. Now, unfortunately, I think a lot of us have the problem that these Israelites have. It's not that we don't worship God. It's not like we skip any Sundays, right? It's not like we miss out on life group. No, we, but it's the fact that we have our Sunday life, and then for the rest of the week, we have other lives as well. You know, there are certain areas in our life where we say, okay, God, you can have this. But there are other areas where we think, maybe in areas of business, careers, maybe parenting, finances, Maybe studies. I mean, you, you know that God is God, but it just seems like some other advice are more practical, more suitable. You know, you think that those things will make a difference in your life. 
It seems like we need to follow the trend and the values of this world in order to survive, in order to have a happy life. It seems like we need to have that perfect job. The problem is not that we abandon our faith today. The problem is that we compromise our faith. And one example I want to give you is when I was in college, I was actually a pre-med student. And I was really kind of, I was really serious about this pre-med thing, right? So I got all this advice, and someone told me that, okay, if you want, want to go to medical school, you have to work in a lab. And so, and I heard that there's this great professor who, you know, if you can get his recommendation letter, you know, he's going to solve everything for you. you know, it doesn't matter what kind of MCAT grade you, you, you get. You know, if you just have his recommendation letter, his name is so well known that you can, that you, that, that you can, that you can just guarantee that you're going to go to medical school. I was like, okay, man, that, that sounds great. And then so somehow I got into his lab. And for starting from sophomore year, I've worked in his lab for two years. It was difficult. He asked a lot, right? But there's only one reason I, I, I stayed in that lab. It wasn't because I enjoyed the lab work. Because, okay, if I stick with this guy, he's going to lead me into the school that I want to go to. Okay, so at the end of my junior year, I come back, I come back from my summer break, and I'm about to start my senior year. I get a phone call. I hear that, okay, the professor, he's dead. You know, he, he passed away from a heart attack. And you know what's more sad than that? The fact that the first thing that came to my mind was, God, what about me? What do I do now? You know, you see, that revealed something in my heart. That revealed that I wasn't trusting God at that moment. I was banking on a recommendation letter. You know, you see, we say that we trust God a lot of times, but we are banking on a lot of different things. We are banking on our careers. We are banking on our education. We are banking on different things. And it's not like we're abandoning our faith. We're just compromising our faith. God is not one among many. He is the one and only. And he wants us to stop dancing between different things. He wants us to commit fully. Okay, and you can be, and probably some of you are are thinking right now, okay, I kind of heard this sermon before. You know, I, I understand the concept of idols, that we have to get rid of idols. And yeah, it's, it's just so difficult, right? I mean, how, I mean, how many idols do I have to identify? Each week, you know, I have to come up with a new idol just so I can share in my life group discussion, right? <laughs> I, I, you know, people are going to judge me if I share the same idol and idol again, right? And I was thinking about this for the long, longest time and realized that, you know, this, this problem of idolatry, it's not a problem of priority. Did you know that? And let me give you an illustration. I have one woman in my life. That's my wife, right? She's not one among many wives. She's not one among many women. She's the one and only. She's the one and only that I have. You see, there's a clear difference between her being one among many and her being one and only. You know, I don't go around and say, okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to spend some time with my brothers and also some sisters, right? And I'm going to spend well, maybe a couple hours, maybe just eating with them. And then, but... I'll make sure that I spend the most time with my wife. You know, I make sure she's a top priority. You know, I'm, it's, not like, it's not like I'm not treasuring her, right? I'm making her a top priority. You see, that's not good enough. You know, if you are making her top, pri- top priority, but you're still meeting other women, you're cheating. <laughs> a lot of us are cheating on God. Did you know that? You see, when my wife became my one and only, what happened was I didn't have to prioritize things. What happened was my relationship with my wife affected every other relationship I had with other women. 
You see, that's what it means to get rid of your idols. It's not like, okay, what are, what are my idols and how can I get rid of them? No. It's about making Jesus the center of your life, making him the Lord of your life and saying, Jesus, speak, and have your way in every area of your life, in my life. If study is your idol, you don't have to lay down your studies. You don't have to quit school. If family is your idol, you don't have to kind of you know, abandon your family. No, that's not what I'm trying to say. Getting rid of your idols doesn't mean just laying everything down. It just means that you have to allow Jesus to be Lord in those areas. Money itself, it's not bad, right? The way that we use money sometimes can be bad. See, it's, it's not an issue of priority. It's an issue of lordship. Are we willing to trust God and allow him in every, every area of our life? If God is our one and only, he must rule over every area of our life. And also, if God is our one and only, his word will always have the final say. You know how you know that God is kind of the Lord of all in your life? You can look at the way that you make decisions. You know, when you make decisions, is the word of God, is that just a good opinion? Or does it have the final say? When you're trying to figure out, okay, okay, is it okay to drink or not? Um, is, is, are you just treating the word of God just as another opinion? Or are you making it the final say? You know, if you're kind of trying to debate whether or not it's, it, it's okay to get a tattoo, are you are trying to make the word? I'm not, by the way, I'm not giving any opinions right now. I'm just saying whatever opinion or decision that you make, you need to have a clear word of God. You have to have, be able to defend your position by the word of God. No, the word of God is not just another opinion. It is the final say. In 1 Kings 17 and 18, we see that Elijah is driven by the word of God. Every major life decision that he makes, he is led by the word of God. And when he flees from King Ahab, he is led by the word of God. When he reappears into public, it says in the beginning of chapter 18, he is led by the word of God. And finally, when he prays at the altar in verse 36, he says, I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. The problem with King Ahab is that he abandoned the commandments of God. How was Elijah able to stay faithful in such a secular world? Well, he holds on to the word of God. Now, James chapter 5 tells us that Elijah was just an ordinary man. No, we don't have much description about Elijah in the text. All we know that he's a Tishbite. Even the name Elijah says Yahweh is Lord. You see, Elijah is not the supernatural human being. He's just a man who followed the word of God. He allowed the word of God to have the final say in his life. And lastly, if the Lord, if the Lord is the one and only, we must stay faithful. If God, if God is one and only, we must stay faithful. Even when things look bad, even when you're outnumbered, even when the majority has a different opinion, even when you feel like this, okay, this is not even going to be a competition, you have to say, okay, I'm going to stay faithful because I know the Lord is the one and only. You see, the odds are always going to be against you. That's the Christian life. We are not called to be successful. We are called to be faithful. And why is this text so important to us? Well, because you see that this battle actually kind of gives us a picture of another battle that takes place in the New Testament. 
And this time it's not on Mount Carmel. But this time it's on the cross. Where Jesus, against all odds, when people were doubting, people were, didn't even give Jesus a chance, he defeats sin, he defeats death, he defeats Satan, he silences all the critics, he silences all the doubts, he proclaims that he is the resurrection of life, that he is the author of life. No one was asking for a rematch after that. You know, against all odds, Jesus proved that the Lord was the one and only. And there's only one thing that's left for us. Are we going to follow? In 19, we have this picture of a king coming back. And it's pretty clear that, okay, if, if you're on the king's side, if you're on this, this, the, the king of kings and the lord of lords, if you're on his side, then you're safe. But everyone else gets slaughtered by the sword that comes out of the king's mouth. You see, there is final judgment, but praise be to God, but there's grace. God did not give up on the Israelites. He sent Elijah so that not only that they would know that God is one and only, so that their hearts will be turned back to him so that they can respond in extravagant worship. For us, Jesus demonstrated that he is powerful than sin, death, and the enemy. So how would you respond? Don't make God one among many. Make him the one and only. Let's pray. I just want to give you a couple minutes to respond to, to his message. So how are you com compromising your faith? What are some things that you feel like, you know, you can't survive without this in your life? No. Are you fully trusting God in every decision that you make? Does the word of God have the final say in your life? Or is it just an opinion that comes up and that you can decide what to do and what not to do. You see, our God is a jealous God. It says, it says in Exodus that our God, one of his names is jealous. He's not looking to share his throne. He doesn't want his people to dance from one side to the other. He wants you to commit. How would you respond to him? today? How would you make him the one and only in your life? Just not one among many. No, all these false idols, they make a lot of promises, but you have to remember there's only one God who answers with fire, and that is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God that we serve, our Lord God. So just take a couple minutes to respond to the message today.